0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is Lisa Krieger. I'm science writer for the San Jose Mercury News and Bay Area News Group publications. And it is great to be here. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's guests, Shoshana Berger and Dr. B.J. Miller, Shoshana serves as the editorial director of the global design and consulting company IDEO. And prior to joining IDEO, Shoshana was a senior editor at Wired magazine and also co founded the DIY design magazine called Ready Made. Dr. B.J. Miller is a hospice and palliative care physician who treats and teaches and works with patients with terminal or life altering illnesses at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. For years, he's been shaping a really profound vision of how to control and shift our experience with life-threatening illnesses. Together, they've written a really wonderful book called The Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. And that's what we're here to celebrate this evening. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Shoshana Berger and Dr. B.J. Miller. Uh so I'll start by saying what makes this book so special is that it's literally a user's guide you know death death particularly our own death is a really scary thing to think about and I think for too long it's been taboo it's been shoved into a corner but if we know what to do, we're kind of okay. If we know where to get help, if we know what to expect, we're, we're, we're kind of okay. And I have to tell you, this is the kind of book I wish I'd had when my father died, and it was an experience that catalyzed a, a series of articles in the San Jose Mercury News called The Cost of Dying. I remember how stunned I was to discover that my dad was actually mortal. It never occurred to me, I, and I somehow he seemed bigger than that. and. And it seemed that when things got hard with his illness, that if I just loved him enough, it would be okay, that we'd, we'd power through it. And I was just stunningly unprepared um, to navigate what became a really, really hard experience. And I know I'm, I'm not alone in that. So I think what I've learned is that we want to talk about it, we want to learn, but we're actually we're just waiting for someone else to bring it up first, <laughs> which is what you've done so well with this book, so beautifully with this book. What's great about this book is you know it's not a drug or a device. It's not a test. It's not a treatment. It's not a therapy. What it is is a different way of organizing our ending so we really live our last days better and we can pass more gently and with more dignity and with the people we care about. The second thing about this book is, it's not sad. It's, it's really not sad at all. It's, there are funny parts, it's irreverent, it's very conversational, it's very colloquial. It's, it's kind of like having a friend and mm. someone who just leads you by the hand and gets you through this experience. And finally, what I love about it is, at its foundation, the whole focus of this book is about living life with purpose. It's about living life with meaning. It's about living life with intentionality. And for that, I, I thank both, both of you a lot. Mm. So I'll start briefly and, and ask really what brought you together to do this book. And Shoshana, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, you come to it personally. You had, you had witnessed uh, your father's decline from dementia. And you describe really right after your father's death, you felt so clueless that you went to Google and said, what do you do when someone dies? Tell tell me more.
1: Yeah, and it turns out if you sit down and Google what do you do after someone dies, you get an AARP checklist of things to do, which is useful but not terribly warm feeling when you're in a moment of deep grief. Um, and it's true. I like you, Lisa. Felt completely completely clueless and unable to navigate the experience. And, um, you know, my father had suffered for quite a long time. He had suffered for five years with dementia. And like you, I also felt like he was among the immortals. Um, And he was kind of a lion of an intellectual and, and a professor for 50 years and then lost the one faculty that meant the most to him, which was his brain, which was a loss of... Identity and a kind of pre-grief that I wasn't expecting. Um, and my, my sister and I didn't know how to deal with that either. You know, how are, how do you grieve someone who's still alive? Mm. Um, but so often that's the case because people lose, they get fractured and parts of their identity go away and, and you have to deal with how do I reorient myself with this person who is not the person that I knew and that I depended on in so many ways? Mm-hmm. Uh, and an interesting role reversal happens there. Anyway, this is a digression. The, the way So uh, my father had just died when this gentleman walked into the door at IDEO San Francisco. And um, I was pretty thick in grief. And we um, we were assigned at this project to get the word out about hospice. Hospice has a lot of bad baggage. Um, and, you know, people actually think of it as a death sentence. And BJ was, at the time, the director of this and Hospice. And so IDEO and a small team of us were thinking about how do we amplify this message that hospice is an incredible suite of care that is free to you as a Medicare benefit. And b j sat down and had this we, first of all, let me just describe where we were sitting. IDEO had designed a kind of yurt within our offices to have this conversation. It was like we my colleagues joked that we had built a death yurt inside the office, and um we we walked in through this you know tunnel and sat around a candlelit table and had a very intimate and vulnerable conversation about how we wanted the end of our lives to look. And there were some very transcendent visions for how the end of life could look. You know, there was like standing on the top of a glacier in Iceland, and and people had soundtracks in mind, and um, there were some really beautiful visions. um, And I had just come out of something that looked very different that looked very earthy and small in my sister's old bedroom in a house in Berkeley with a father who was completely out of it. And I thought, how do I square these things? And BJ has a very different vision for how to humanize the experience and how to come to grips with it, make a truce with it. And I kind of looked over at him and thought, this man has a way to unlock this whole conversation. And a lot of people are as confused as I am, and so we should try to help them. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, great
0: great transition to BJ. Mm. You had your own experience at 19, accidental electrocution. We won't ask you to, to describe that, um, but it gave you a real up-close and personal view of healthcare and near-death experiences, and also all the hundreds and thousands of people that you've helped since then. Talk about then how you brought that to, to bear on this book and, and the messaging uh, with Shoshana.
2: Yeah, so thank you, Lisa. Thanks, Shosh. It's, always, it's fun to hear that story again and again. Um, so, so I, you know, my own trajectory through healthcare as a patient was, um, as things go, pretty darn good, really. I had amazing care. Um, I had all faith in my doctors, and the nurses were amazing. This is a burn unit in New Jersey, and burn units are not very happy places. But as as a foil, as a backdrop with all that pain, you pretty quickly also see where compassion and humor and beauty just really pop out in an incredible way. as a foil, you know, so you're in this really dynamic place, so it's very touch-and-go, but the people who go are attracted to work in such a place tend to be pretty amazing, um, and that was my experience. I, I so I had really wonderful care in all sorts of ways, and was very aware of how it could be different and how it could be better. So as I was going through it, um, it was pretty quickly clear to me that we've got problems with the health system, less so with the people in healthcare. Healthcare, you know, I mean, when you stop and think, what people go through to become a doctor, nurse, social work, chaplain, I mean, it's. It's obscene how much devotion and how much debt they take on in years of study just for the privilege to dare to care for another human being. It's so beautiful. So I was, I was really learning. I was feeling this a distinction between the system where it was broken and and the richness of the people, the humanity that was playing out. So I was first row, front row seat of all that, and that was sort. Ter- turning me on, tuning me into this other, this way of, of being with other people. And, um, and, and then you also start seeing the opportunities that illness presents, um, where all this loss, and I already kind of gave it away, this, this, we're relative creatures and this, this foil, this, this contrast between pain and the joy that you can feel when pain leaves you for a moment, you know, this ecstasy, and it was weird I, when I left the burn unit after two and a half months in there, which really, guys, is a torture chamber. There's almost much to say about a burn unit. But I'm, I'm, I wept the day I left. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was so sad to leave this hell, <laughs> it was, which was really, an, I was, you know, that stuck with me. It probably got to the people, but also the appreciation. It was, I, I, I remember sitting up for the first time and feeling gravity again. And how profound that felt and how much I loved Mother Nature for, for itself. Anyway, go on and on and on. So I was, on the one hand, uh, had these great experiences and saw the critique of the system and also was aware that the things I was going through were generic. There were variations on themes. You may not lose limbs, but you lose something. There's no one here who's lost nothing. There's no one here who's not suffered. And I started to feel that. What might appear like an isolating thing was actually a connector and so that's why I went into medicine, to make good on that potential. Wow. Thank you. Mm.
0: So we'll jump into the nuts and bolts of the book, if we could, because it's so rich and there's so much to say about it. Shoshana, you're a designer and you're an organizer, and really a message that comes through strong and clear here is that you don't have to be a passive part of this part of life. Um, So one of my favorite parts of the book is something that they describe as a when-I-die file. And um, it's actually not nearly as sad as it sounds. Um, Talk about why that's important, what needs to be in that file. I guess what needs to be in that file and what would be lovely to have in that file. Um,
1: Talk a little bit about that. Right. So the when-I-die file, um, actually, I originally wanted to call it the if-I-die file. And BJ kind of looked at me like... If I die, <laughs> Shoshana, you're writing a book about death, probably. Um, so, you know, even even I was slipping in the language. So this file, and it doesn't have to be a file. This could be a cloud drive. This could be a shoebox. This could be anything you want it to be. But it's basically a place where you're putting all of the stuff that will help the people who love you kind of shut down your life and remember you when you go so, of course, the really important paperwork, like you want to have your advanced health care directive in there, which is signed and notarized. And that's the document, of course, where you say, look, if I walk out of here and I get hit by a bus and I end up in the hospital and I can't speak for myself, I'm electing this person who I trust to be at the bedside and help, make, help my doctors make decisions about my care. So, And by the way, sometimes that person is not the person you love most in the world, like your partner um, or your child. Because sometimes that person may love you so much that they can't really observe your wishes because they want to keep you alive at all costs. Um, and so it's, a, it's, it's not just an honorific. It's something to really deeply think about who that person is It's going to really honor your wishes and then you you know your will and all that paperwork stuff which we go through in the book we have a checklist of about 20 things that go into this file i'm not going to enumerate all of them Um, but then there's some other things that we put in there that are a little bit more about how people will remember you and you know what you want to be remembered for so we talk about writing a letter to the people you love telling them what you want them to know. Um, We went through this exercise with this amazing woman in San Francisco, Frisch Brandt, who sits with hospice patients and kind of midwives these letters. So, you know, what do you want to say to your sister, brother, daughter, son, mother, father? Having that kind of thing in the file that people discover can just last, can be a memory that, that they carry with them forever. Um, maybe a recipe, a family tradition. There's, there's a lot of stuff that you can put in that feels really meaningful. And your passwords. Password, computer mm-hmm. passwords. Mm-hmm. We go through life creating yeah. so many passwords. And of course, there are password managers now. There's like one password and Dashley and all of these clever things. But, If you haven't given the person in your life access to that password manager, they're blocked out of that too. I remember trying to just get the emails of my father's colleagues to invite them to a memorial was virtually impossible because I couldn't access his computer and his contacts. So you can make life so much easier and really unburden the people you love by creating a file like this.
0: You can also plan for your service, which probably helps, right? What kind of music do you want? I've heard dreadful music at some services <laughs> to be
1: able to pick your own um, and to craft that as well. Yeah, I mean, totally. We had one guy who was um, had driven an ice cream truck his whole life, and he, he wanted the ice cream truck parked outside his memorial so people could have one last cone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Your friend and, and
0: Dartmouth colleague, um, Ira Byock, talks about the four things that matter the most and, and how important it is to communicate that to people. And I guess now the list is is five. Talk about that a little bit, Shoshana. What
1: are those things? Sure. Nice. I feel like i hogging the stage here. No, no. 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 <laughs> so nice. Please. No, it's and then so we'll nice. go back to um, Okay. So this is a really beautiful framework. Um, and we couldn't, we couldn't, we didn't write this ourselves because Ira had written it and we didn't need to thank God. So Ira wrote this book called the four things that matter most. And basically in his, all of his years as a palliative care physician and someone who sat with people as they were dying, what he found was that every, it all boiled down to these kind of four things to say to people when you're dying that, that really brings a sense of of resolution, and those four things are: please forgive me, I forgive you, thank you, and I love you and that was it um, and It turns out somehow those things really um, unburden both the person who 's dying and the person who loves that person uh, in in really profound ways and when we interviewed Ira for the book. We said, Ira, look, it's been 10 years since you wrote that book. Is there a fifth thing? Have you discovered anything else? And he said, actually, come to think of it, I have. I now see 65-year-old men who are still carrying around with them the desire to hear from their father. I'm so proud of you. And to say to your to your child as you're dying, I'm so proud of you, um, feels like it. It it packs a wallop, mm-hmm. an emotional
0: wallop. B.J. Some of the more practical things in the healthcare arena, and, and Shoshana had addressed healthcare directives. Unpack that a little bit. You you clearly need to appoint someone to act to speak for you when you can't speak for yourself. What else should be in that healthcare directive? How specific can it be with respect to medical care?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what does yours look like? Mm-hmm. And,
2: so the big, the so the the main driver of the, of an advanced directive is to name your proxy. We've already talked a little bit about that. That's, I would say, if you had to do if you're going to do one thing, that would be it. And that proxy is, you know, this person is going to speak on your behalf if and when you can't speak for yourself. Um, so it's, it becomes your advocate, and the person standing in for you, and and it's so important. I think it is a good time for a pause. So. You know, again, healthcare is filled with people on some level that you should be able to trust. There's a lot of caring people and et cetera. Um, But especially these days, I mean, we are at a time, and that's a really important reason why a book like this needs to happen, or other books too need to happen around this, is we can, we have the technology to prop a body up pretty much indefinitely, which really opens up some very interesting questions, like what is death in the first place? Um, so in some ways, no matter what your bleachers are, many of us are going to need at some point to say no thanks to that next treatment because if you're waiting for there to be no more options in medicine, you're probably going to be sadly... <laughs> uh, you're, 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 there, there are always more things to try, especially when you take into experimental treatment. But just because you can try something doesn't mean you should. Um, and this is how people accidentally find themselves... Uh, in places they would never want to be. And you can't, even if you have really well-meaning physicians, it's very hard for them to guess what you would want in this situation, et cetera. So anyway, sorry for the digression, but it's really, it's a, it's a unique moment in sort of medical history where there are too many options. So you're going to need to say no at some point. So that proxy, okay. Um, Otherwise, besides the healthcare proxy and the advanced directive are things like, you know, um, do you want life sustaining treatments like ventilatory support, like a, a, a vent? Um, do you want to be kept alive with machines? You know, do you want artificial nutrition and hydration? These kinds of questions. So there's a great place for you to state your wishes if you know them. The trick here though is most people's opinions change on those kinds of questions over time. And it depends, you know, would I want someone to, if I tonight fall down here on the stage, have a heart attack. Would I want someone to try CPR on me tonight? Yes. Yes. I would if I'm living with chronic illnesses uh, that you know like metastatic cancer for example if I'm living with metastatic cancer if my heart stops the chances of anyone reviving me are about 1% or less so it's context specific so depending on where you're on your life your opinions may change so an advanced directive you can state these wishes but get in the habit of re- returning to this document with some frequency Next time you have a big diagnosis, or that diagnosis changes, or there's a big life event, or whatever else. One thing to get across to you guys is this is an co- ongoing conversation.
0: And what age do you recommend first doing it?
2: Oh, uh, thanks for jumping in. I could have yeah. talked to one. But, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, really, 18. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you
0: think of the cases that have been so com- controversial, the Terry Shavos and all that—they mm-hmm. were young. they young people. Diana Quinlan, yeah, young.
2: So, and it's in particularly true since the HIPAA, the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act. Um, uh, one of the provisions is that, um, you know, your privacy is taken very seriously. Sounds good, but sometimes a little too seriously. So, the day you turn eighteen, you become an adult. Technically, a doctor can't talk to your parents without your permission. Now, oftentimes that gets fudged, but that's why we say 18. When you are an adult, you should make sure to make your, If you, you know, depending on your relationship, you might want to make your parents your proxy. Because otherwise, they may not be able to hear from the doctor how you're doing, which we've talked to people. Who, that's a terrifying moment for a parent. You know, kids off to college. If an accident like mine happened, my parents get a call and they can't, the, the nurse or doctor can't tell my parents how I'm doing? Ooh. That would have been hard, so that's why we say eighteen.
0: Okay, and where does one keep this document? Not a not a safe deposit box. No,
2: it needs to be accessible. So in the <laughs> when a die file for sure. But um, your doctor should have a copy. Most electronic medical records now can upload your advance directive, so it's in the chart. Uh, you want it there, so and. Over, you know, over every, every doctor, most of us have multiple doctors, make sure everyone has a copy, make sure your uh, advance. Uh, make sure your healthcare proxy has their copy, and your family or friends know where to find it. Make this a very accessible thing.
0: And what's a good way to approach your healthcare proxy? Like, how do you have that conversation with them? And what do you, what do you say?
2: <laughs> well, I'm smiling because there's a little anecdote in the book where. I've had people. I've met people at a party, and we're sort of waking up to this issue. And we'll talk, and some like I'll, I've gotten texts from people I just met. Hey, I made you my healthcare proxy. <laughs> like, no, no, no. no. Like, this is a real relationship. You need to know this person. They need to know you. Um,
0: Do they need to be? Geographically close, probably, because you need to be at the ER when you arrive.
2: Presumably? It's helpful, but we're also so dang mobile these days that that's a moving target. So it's more important that the person be close to you and be able to speak for you on, on, on your behalf and, and someone with whom you want to be in touch. Uh, that's much more important. Um, so what was and, that answer? No, that was perfect. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay.
0: um, and we've heard about pull, But Actually, let me just back up a little before we move on to PULST, which is Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people say with healthcare directive, is it legal? Like, can I,
2: mm-hmm.
0: if I, you know, carry this in and it's given to the doctor, do the, does the doctor have to follow what's specified?
2: So this gets really tricky. Okay. Can I jump in on that one real Please. quick? Yeah. So, advanced directive is a legal document. It, is, it legally protects your healthcare proxy, but it is not a medical doc, doc, document. So, doctors ultimately, doctors have the say. Any of us can ask our doctor. We can't demand a kind of treatment. We can hope for a kind of treatment, but a doctor has the say of whether you get that treatment or not. You can always turn down a treatment, but I can't go to my doctor and demand um, a treatment. It's up to do- that's the doctor's professional responsibility and choice. So, there are all these beautifully worked out advanced directive everything's notarized and as it should be. But because there's no doctor's signature on that form, if in the heat of the moment in an ER or a trauma center, that advanced directive may or may not go honored. And there are a lot of horrible stories where people have done all their preparation and found that the health system or the hospital didn't honor their wishes. There's a lot to say about that. To date, most of the sort of legal thinking and most of the CYA cover your um, Tail, uh, <laughs> is oh, the, what I learned from it was like air, air aggressive. Even if the advance directive says that person doesn't want life sustaining heroics, you know, the family would the, the chance of us getting sued because we didn't try to revive that person seemed to outweigh the, the honoring the wishes. So everyone was airing aggressive. Now I'm interested to see how many lawsuits start popping up where someone gets resuscitated and said they didn't want to and then sues a the doctor for, for being overly aggressive. I believe that we'll, we'll start seeing that.
0: Which leads us to the, the pulsed forms. Talk about how they differ from a directive and when they're appropriate, when they're not.
2: So a Pulse form, Physicians Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Now, every state has some version of it, some call it a slightly different name, but if you Google post in whatever your state, you'll find it. And it's a one-page form, two sides, so it's a sort of a distilled version of an advanced directive. It's not quite the same thing. And where it's different is it's got all the big basics. Who's your proxy? Do you want life-sustaining measures? Do you want artificial nutrition, hydration? Or do you want things like comfort care? But the difference from the post is it is signed by a doctor so that now the legalities are being worked out. But if you have a post and you present to some uh, ER at some hospital, that doesn't know you, they should honor that order. It's, it's an order by a physician and that's the distinction. So it is the most sort of distilled and most robust document. And so it's a great companion to the rest of your so your will, your trust, all that stuff, um, pulse becomes really really important if you if if you are living with chronic illness serious illness and there's a good chance that you're going to end up in an er somewhere out of nowhere that's when folks are sort of living at the tail end of of long bouts of illness we typically tell them to you know with a magnet stick it to the refrigerator in case the paramedics get called you know if you're found down or whatever else make that thing really accessible
0: Great. so shoshana as a consumer as a patient as a As a caregiver, it's really hard to get the information you need to make some of these decisions that BJ just described. Um, A friend of mine, Katie Butler, um, talks... You know, we have Part A, Part B, Medicare. She talks about we need a Part Q for quality. Uh, How do we get the information through non-rush medical decision-making, you know, home-centered treatment? What's your advice for getting... How do you approach doctors to get the information you need to make some of these decisions? Mm. I think a lot of us are afraid we don't want to be too pushy. We don't don't want to alienate the doctor. On the other hand, they're
1: busy and yep. they don't have a lot of time. You bet. Um, unfortunately, we're still in a situation where you really have to lean into this and advocate for yourself because doctors likely aren't going to bring it up. Um, in fact, I spent a glorious day in the ER and in doctor's offices with my mother on Saturday. She's suffering some some edema and potential um, congestive heart failure issues. And um, my mom does not have an advanced healthcare care directive. She's 78. I just wrote this book. So I'm sitting there with her in the waiting room, and I ask the very kind triage nurse, can we, um, can we fill out an advanced health care directive here for my mother? Um, not to force the issue, but do you have someone here who can help us with that? And she said, sure, sure, I will send someone in. We were in that hospital for five hours. No one ever came with an advanced health care directive to help us through that process. And it's just so emblematic, you know, it, it's a triage center. So they're just trying to move people through. It's about throughput, right? They're trying to figure out what's what's causing the emergency and get you through. Um, but if you're an emerg- in an emergency situation that's a life-threatening situation and you don't have that document, you haven't expressed your wishes, and you're asking for that, don't you think the doctor should be forthcoming and say, hey, let's walk you through that process? Mm. So that was a little dismaying, I have to say. And it's, again, part of the reason why we wrote this book is that we feel like you can be your own advocate. You can take some agency. You can sit down with your, with your primary care doctor way before you're in an urgent situation and say, Hey, you know, I've been thinking I should probably think through some of these things before anything happens. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're in that position now. Of course, there are inc- physicians, many, many physicians who are much more proactive about this. You know, there's this great Dr. Bud Ham in the Midwest who got an entire city of, uh, where was it? Um, La Crosse, Wisconsin. La Crosse, Wisconsin. Yeah. Got the entire city all armed up with their advanced health care directives. He was such a advocate of going through that having that conversation early and, and getting that p- paperwork done and getting people thinking about, about how they, you know, how they want to exit. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club
0: of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google play and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So let me um, pivot to BJ, if I could, mm-hmm. as a doc from the doctor's perspective, mm-hmm. and this relates to a question we just got too, and that is, doctors struggle to prognosticate. They may not want to, and how do you get realistic information about terminal illness or chronic disease? Mm-hmm. How? What do you? what do you recommend? How should patients or families approach you to get that kind of information?
2: So one of the reasons that back up for say, so, um, the classic data, the data sort of classically suggests that doctors don't disclose the sort of full picture, the total truth of the situation as they see it, the prognosis, et cetera, because they don't want to take away hope. That's the classic. And, and, There have been studies on this, and we know that actually the truth does not take away hope. And, of course, it's not a doctor's role to give or take hope. Um, that's not ours to give or take. So that, that is old fashioned thinking, but it lingers and it lingers because also because we doctors aren't very well trained in communication and how to deal with things that we can't fix, how to sit with someone who's suffering that we can't fix. That skill is in, 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 in invaluable and not trained how to talk to people about their mortality with uh, while comforting them, not trained. So we all, we conspire to avoid it, etc. Um, so put all that together and you might find your doctor is actually the one who doesn't want to talk about this. Um, so you need to just be armed. This idea, I think a lot of us feel that when we're sick, we're vulnerable, we just, the idea of someone who knows more than we do and we can feel safe and just want to hand ourselves over to the doctor or, you know, I, I, I understand that impulse. Um, I just would never recommend it. No matter, even if you have, you know, Marcus Welby for your doctor these (laughs) days, there's just no, the biggest brain and the biggest heart, there's just no time, you know, and they, there's, just, there's just no so, room.
0: So what's a good way to phrase it so that you do get the information you get? Can you say, yeah. for a patient in my condition, my age, um, mm-hmm. how do you see this typically play out? I mean, what frustrates me, to be honest with you, is that doctors do have the experience. They do have the data. They have read the studies. We mm-hmm. don't. As patients, this is all new to us. Right. So,
2: well, so I guess where I was, where one thing is like, be your advocate bring someone with you. You have to be your own advocate. Um, and you need to push. Sometimes they'll resist. Oh, we don't want to talk. We don't need to talk about that now. And you might have to say, no, actually, I really, really want to talk about this now. And if not now, when can we? Should I schedule another appointment? I mean, you just need to be kind of persistent. Um, and really, you it's, it may not feel this way, but you, you, you have the power as a patient. You know, it's very, it, it, doctors sort of act like we do, and sometimes we do, blah blah blah. But you, you, you have much more power than you realize. So push them. You know, I. I Obviously, respectfully, do things like instead of, you know, with these appointments, go in with two or three questions. Follow, schedule follow-up appointments if you have more questions. You know, don't try to ram in at a gazillion things because you're just going to get frustrated. So there's some basic sort of human respect for you to kind of get what you need. But the bottom line there is push and say, Doc, I know you may be worried about my response, but I'm telling you, I really do need to know. I want to know. Just give me your best guess. That kind of thing. Um, and I'll say one more thing about this, Lisa. In our book, thanks to a widower of a patient of mine named Steve Shire, we have a tool in the book, this prognostic awareness tool, where it's just a checkbox. You can say to your doctor, I'm the kind of person who doesn't want to know. I don't, don't give me your best guess of when I'm going to die. That will just make me nervous. I want to live every day. I want to stay in the moment. I'm going to live every day and take it as it comes please don't tell me about my prognosis. Or you can check the box, tell me everything I'm the kind of person needs to know. So anyway, you'll find a copy of this in the book and that makes it very easy. Check the box, the kind of person you are, the kind of information flow you need because you can control the spigot with this and give it to your doctor.
0: A related question, how does a lay person learn about the pros and the cons of different life-supporting systems? Mm.
2: (laughs) It's a great question. You know, Uh, if,
0: if I'm 90 and have a heart attack on the tennis court, what are the chances I'll be back playing a set next week? Or mm-hmm. if this is um, first round of chemo versus fifth round of chemo, mm-hmm. w- where does one get that information?
2: There is no great singular place. Okay. Um, th- there isn't. I mean, I think a lot of those folks with a guy named Angela Velandez or other folks who are making sort of videos to sort of help you understand what you're getting yourself into. Because if we say the t- classic moment is with doctors, young doctors say, Hey, do you want us to do everything to help you live? And you're like, of course I do. What kind of dumbass question is that? I mean, but if we say, well, and the chances of you like getting back in the tennis court are, are approaching zero, or it's going <laughs> to include a lot of pain uh, that might be your final moments or whatever else, you need to flesh that out. Um, so there is no great way to understand what any of these things looks like. But just know in general that uh, resuscitative measures are relatively violent acts. I mean, electric shocks, chest compressions very often involve rib rib fractures, etc. Not to scare you, but it makes a point like you don't enter these things lightly. Or, you know, watch your expectations. And we know... Living with advanced uh, heart failure, living with advanced organ failure of any kind, living advanced cancer, i.e. metastatic cancer, the rates of responding to resuscitation, bring, being brought back from your own death, are vanishingly small. So I would just, I mean, you've got to give me, as your doctor, a really good reason to why you want me to try resuscitation if you've got metastatic cancer.
0: What about getting second and third opinions in this whole world of managed care? Um how does one recommend and will you yeah. offend your doctor if you say you'd like to get an opinion from someone else
2: you might but screw him i mean this is like you know like this is where the doctor this is a service business this period and you know if your doctor is offended that you would want a second or a third opinion because so much is about confidence do i have confidence that i'm about to go through with that I've made the best decision I can with the best information I can. And I'm as geared up as I can be like confidence is the thing. And it may need, you may love your doctor, but it may be very helpful to have a, 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 an opinion from a different angle and any doctor worth their salt would welcome that. And if you get pushback from someone about that, I would say, go find a different doctor.
0: Shoshana, let's talk a little bit about caregiving and, I think a lot of us in the baby boom generation know we have this tsunami that's about to crash. And a lot of us are geographically scattered from our families. Maybe we don't have these long term stable marriages we used to have. Um, there's no person to be that tent pole, central tent pole, to keep it together. How do you ask for help from your friends? If friends call and say, How can I help? How do you respond? talk about
1: that yeah I mean the point you bring up is so important we we don't have those support structures anymore those multi-generational families that all live in one house and you know living on the farm your grandma's taking care of the little kids and the little kids are taking care of grandma or mom's taking care of grandma We just don't have those support structures anymore. And so we often find ourselves in need of help. And I think BJ and I both are advocates of getting help before you even think you need it. Like, get to bring in, marshal the forces um, as soon as you think you need it. Because the truth is, caregivers have the hardest hardest roles in the world. I mean, it is an invisible service they are giving to the world at great financial cost, opportunity cost, if you're missing work, emotional cost, watching someone diminish. Um, there can be all kinds of family complexity and dynamism that comes into play between siblings. There's a million different things you're dealing with, plus the laundry and, you know, changing the bedding and, and grocery shopping and all that. So how to ask for help. There's a lot of different ways to um, get help. Um, One is, you know, your friends, the people who love you, see you suffering under the burden of this caregiving. They want to help. So you can delegate small tasks to them. You know, there are all these apps and online services that will allow people to sign up for a kind of cooperative caregiving task. So... I'll drive her to a doctor's appointment this week. Someone else is going to do the grocery shopping. Someone else is going to come and throw in a load of laundry. Just taking care of little things like that can really unburden someone. Um, there is respite care available to people that most don't know about. You know, if you are really in need of a break, you can uh, request respite care and it's a Medicare benefit, right? On on hospice, on hospice, on hospice. So if you elect hospice, you can get respite um, care. And there, there are a lot of ways to to allow help into your world, but you have to actually ask for it. Um, And sometimes it's hard to ask for help. But I think the important thing to remember is that people deeply want to help and that it gives them a real nourishment and sense of purpose when they're helping They feel like a saint for a day if they're helping you. You also talk in your book about the
0: relationship between caregiving and patients, that caregivers gain something from the caregiving experience as much as the patient gains from being helped. And there's this mutuality that's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of us to think back, when you ask yourself years later, did I do everything I could do to be able to say Mm -hmm. yes and Mm -hmm. carry that with you Mm -hmm. moving forward. Um, Quick question about hospice and palliative care. And these are great questions that are coming in. Um, BJ, distinguish between the two, hospice Mm. and palliative care. And then there's a related question that is, um, we've heard hospice is wonderful, but that convalescent homes are paid for referrals. Mm. Uh,
2: Um, So let's start with the hospice and palliative care. So I'm really glad someone asked this. This is a real common misconception. Uh, Is that a word, misconception? Yeah, Mm -hmm. misperception. One or the other. Misconception. There you go. Um, it, so, hospice grew out, uh, came over from the UK, the modern hospice movement from the late 60s and 70s. Uh, one of the first hospices in the Bay Area, uh, one of the first hospices in the country in the Bay Area, uh, Hospice of Marin, 1975, 1976. And Medicaid, Medicare hospice benefit came online in 1982. And that's, so hospice that at that point became sort of a, went from like a mode of care, a type of care to an insurance designation. And that's, that's the moment where we said, oh, you have to have six months or less to live to go on to qualify for hospice and to, and, and to, to qualify for hospice, you have to give up any care, uh, care that's intended to cure you. These are these two sort of man-made, uh, the forks in the road with the hospice benefit. All right. So anyway, that's in the eighties in the 90s by late 80s and 90s in the in the states a lot of people were realizing wait first of all wh- why do we wait to the end of life to be talking to each other about what our wishes are, what makes us, what's important to us. Um, why do we wait to care for each other in this beautiful, loving way? And, and when do we start dying anyway? So this, these kinds of questions prompted the field of palliative care to sprout up sort of around hospice, grew out of hospice. And, and the, the commonality is like, we're not trying to fix you. We're trying to accompany you. We're trying to help uh, help see you through not cure you or fix you or imply that you're broken. Um, And so anyway, palliative care grew up in the 90s around it. So to be irrespective of the six-month-or-less-to-live thing and the idea of giving up curative intent, you don't need that for palliative care. So anyway, so palliative care now is the... Since 2006, the field is called hospice and palliative medicine. That's the subspecialty's official title. Um, I'll stop here in a second, but palliative care, you could say, is basically the interdisciplinary treatment of suffering. Okay. Hospice is the subset of palliative care is interdisciplinary treatment of suffering, uh, for the end of life, the final months of life, you could say. So that's, that's the distinction and that's the commonality between them
0: there's a question as to whether there are financial incentives for referral to hospice.
2: Mm -hmm. So there's fraud all over the place. uh, Of course, there's a ways to game this darn system and people do. And for all the beautiful work hospice uh, generally does in this country, of course, there are bad apples too. um, And a lot of, in the last couple of years, there's been a fair amount of press for all all the growth in the hospice industry in the last 15 years is in the for-profit side of things, and not to imply that for-profit is inherently bad and not-for-profit inherently good, but there 's the model of, of shareholder uh, response, uh, duty to the shareholder versus the patient shows up these hospice agencies are getting bigger and bigger through merger and acquisition they 're making their money based on volume and decentralized operations, etc and so trying to get people onto hospice sooner, which is generally a good thing, but sometimes they fudge the rules and so there 's fraud in hospice too to watch out for. You can, uh, you know, oftentimes in most communities, there's multiple hospice agencies to choose from. So ask them, you know, ask word of mouth, what's the experience of friends and family? You might interview those hospice agencies, ask them like what their staffing ratios are, how often in the final day or two of life do they make a home visit. There are ways to kind of suss out quality.
0: Great advice. Back to caregiving a little bit, and I'll ask, this question, uh, to you, Shoshana, how do you deal with the resentment and the shame that arises sometimes in dealing with a parent in palliative care? 88-year-old father with Alzheimer's, sometimes there's resentment targeted to the staff. Um, I'm assuming they're referencing that the, the parent themselves is having emotional issues and acting out. Do you, how, how do you handle that? Or did you with your father? So
1: how do you handle
0: that with the caregivers? With the... Um, with both the parent and the caregivers,
1: I guess. Mm. Right. Um, well, it's it's a tough one. Um, and uh, I have a good friend who's, whose mother was suffering with Alzheimer's for a long time and um, was in multiple care institutional settings and um, was acting out in various ways. And the caregivers were it's interesting actually under reporting the acting out or kind of just smoothing over it and saying, Oh, she's just so much fun and we just love her and she's full of jokes. And, and then my friend would go and visit and her mother was just completely out of it. Just not there at all, non-responsive. And she was getting such a drastically different picture of her mother's state of affairs. Um, And she was. She and her sisters were getting ready to let her mother go and they felt almost like the caregivers wanted to keep their mother alive and so they were they the the kids were feeling resentment towards the caregivers in the institution saying you know can we square our visions of what's happening here and you know, we're ready to let mom go, we've come to terms with this, and we feel like you are actually not allowing that to happen. So there can be so much dynamism and complexity that comes into this trifecta between caregiver, patient, and and um, the loved one, the, the family member. Um, and, you know, there can be a lot of acting out in, in, Patients with dementia. Um, I saw it with my dad. It's hard to deal with. And what I think you have to remember, and maybe BJ, you can build on this, is you cannot take that acting out personally. Um, they are, and it's a symptom of the disease. It's a symptom the of the disease. Change, There's, the a There's a delirium that kicks in. There's there is acting out that kicks in, and it is. It is not actually directed at you; it is an unconscious kind of limbic brain behavior, and you if you take it personally, it can be devastating and yeah you,
0: you touched on the letting go, and that segues to a, a next question: How do survivors communicate that they 're okay to let you go? Talk about that letting go mm-hmm. conversation and bj you've, you've probably watched it happen many a time. Mm-hmm. Um, Walk us through what that might sound like or how you might say it.
2: When we're sort of encouraging folks to let go? Yes, or
0: as a loved one, how do you tell your... I mean, as, as a caregiver or a loved one, how do you communicate that it's, so you're okay if they yeah. go? Yeah. Or if you're the person who's dying, how do you communicate that you're okay letting go?
2: So there are a couple... So, so right. So there's a couple of things that are sort of phenomena to watch out for in the final days of life. It was sort of really at the very end. Um, one show she touched on, which is a very common sort of end-of-life delirium. Which delirium just, you know, disorientation, confusion. And um, it's, it's exceedingly common at the end of life. And... Uh, I don't remember where we were, but I was giving a talk somewhere and I remember a woman in the audience asked about this because, I mean, she stood up and she was asking how to make sense of what she saw in her husband in his final day. And it was such a touching story. The woman was looked so, looked so and she was years after the death, and she looked so pained still. And she was recounting how this her husband of so many years, who had been the, the sweetest angel of a person his whole life, never said a harsh word to her, blah, 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 blah. In the, his final words to her were profanity-laden, mm-hmm. screaming obscenities at her, and then dead. And so she, her grief was like uh, obvious grief. And then on top of that, my God, I thought I knew this man. What else didn't he tell me? What did I do? I mean, the poor woman was absent. And it was, no one had described to her the common thing of delirium. That was not her husband speaking. And just watching the relief wash over her face to know that he, he was innocent and therefore she was innocent. That was delirium talking and that's very common. So it's a really important thing to keep an eye out for. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's obvious. Um, second point here is the other phenomenon I think that you're touching on here, Lisa, too, which is, um, it, you know, a lot of families will, will do these exquisite bedside vigils at the end. You know, you want to be there for the final breath. Um, and I've watched families not sleep for days, you know, not even go to the bathroom, just wanting to be there because you really can't time this final moment. You're just sitting at the bedside staring. And, and then they'll finally either not off or dare to go to the bathroom or get a cup of coffee. And that's when the person dies. And it feels cruel. Like what, you know, and there's so, it happens commonly enough that we have to sort of be primed for this. And whenever we're coaching families is, you know, you, your, your husband, family, your daughter, whoever, they may need to be alone for the final moment to let go because you're, it feels like the love is so powerful. You can feel people kind of crossing over, coming back, crossing over, coming back, and that the, just the person, the loved one in the room keeps them sort of from finally letting go. They just can't with the other person there. I don't know how to explain it. You just see it again and again. So one of the sweetest things you can do as a family member very often is to actually leave the room. Um, so we always call, you know, coach people, like, you know, give your, give your person a kiss. Say, hey, I love you. It's okay. I'm going to be okay. A lot of people, a lot of dying folks really seem to love to hear this. Is uh, you know, That you, the survivor, that you're going to be okay. It's a real relief to a dying person. So if you can find some genuine way to relate that, whisper, I'm going to be okay, Dad. I love you. Kiss. I'm going to go get some coffee now. And just know that that may be it. And they may they may need that. That may be not abandonment. That may be the kindest thing you can do.
0: Let's talk briefly, and we're we're getting close to wrapping up, but physician-assisted dying. This has been in the headlines a lot recently. California now has couple of years of experience with it. Mm-hmm. What do people need to know to either take advantage of it or just,
2: mm-hmm.
0: or know that it's there? What does it mean? And, and actually, what are we seeing in the data in California as to how many people are using it?
2: So since 2016, the law has been on the books in this, in, in California. And I think we're the seventh, I think there are seven States, uh, last check. Um, they have a version of this law in the States. The first was Oregon, 1997, and there it's called the Death with Dignity Act. For years this was called Physician Assisted Suicide. And more recently that language has changed to aid, medical aid in dying or assisted dying to get away from the baggage of the suicide word, the violence that that implies for a lot of people. Um, so, so that's the, that's the lingo. Um, and the, basically the gist is most states follow Oregon's lead. And it, it, the law looks like, Roughly, you know, you have to you have to have two doctors say that you'll that if the disease falls a central course, you'll be dead within you know six months. That you need to have two different doctors sign the, sign this thing. You need 15 days between the two requests for it, so you need some time. You need to be of sound mind. So even if you had stated this wish for your whole life, like when it's my time, when X Y Z happens, I want that magic pill. Um, if you are not copus mentis at the time where you would be getting that prescription, no physician can legally give it to you. So this is where it gets, the vagaries of the law get really tricky. The other vagary of the law is you have to physically be able to ingest the medication yourself. No one can put it in you. That's to sort of protect the, your autonomy as a person that there's no coercion involved, et cetera. But all these protective measures can also be, feel like barriers, and it can be a, a bureaucratic process trying to actually get off the planet but it's the best we kind of have to kind of insert protections from a public health standpoint, et cetera. It's imperfect. Um, so, so that's the sort of the law, um, the data, the California data, I haven't seen much lately, um, yet, but I tell you from Oregon has a ton of data and you know, it's a very important symbolic issue. It's a very juicy issue from a sort of a a legislative point of view, from a social point of view, from a moral point of view, but it's actually about 0.4% of deaths in Oregon, or by aid in dying. It's a very small number of people who actually do, go out this way. Another really interesting thing to note about it is a, a good chunk of folks who actually go through the process, get the lethal medicine, the prescription, um, never use it. I've had many patients who have done this. Um, and, and it's not that surprising. I mean, you know, I, I don't have a lot of pain anymore, but I love having my pain meds and knowing that my pain meds are in the, the medicine chest. Just knowing they're there is the, is the therapy. And similarly here, like, if I, I know I've got this parachute, if this gets intolerable, I have my way out. And that often is therapeutic enough that you don't actually have to yeah. take the medicine.
0: It eases anxiety. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'll say one more thing about it because it's so interesting. I will say a lot of the sort of justification that you have to give physicians to kind of grant you your wish to die, it really is like you have this intractable suffering is this basic idea. It's like a last resort. But if I'm honest, and a lot of my colleagues would say the same thing, very often the people who are requesting this and doing this it's not so much that they're fleeing this horrible suffering as much as they're sort of walking towards this, this final act, the, their final act of agency, their final demonstration of themselves in the world, that the act itself is a meaning-making thing. That's not in the legislation, but you will see that that's often how it plays out.
0: Beautiful. Your book is so full of great stories. But I'd like to wrap up with one that I just found really humor hilarious, and it shows that you really can have humor in the middle of this profundity that BJ was just describing, and also how important and therapeutic humor can be, and what a fundamental part of life it is. So Shoshana, talk about someone you knew who was caring for a father, um, where humor was really part of his day-to-day care, even at the end, even at the end.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, humor's gotta be there. Gosh, you know, this, this mortal coil that we go through, we need to laugh. So, this friend of mine, um, was taking care of her dad. He was on hospice. And they had set up the hospice bed in the living room in the house. And he had insisted that there was a giant nude portrait of his wife hanging above <laughs> the hospice bed, just kind of blazing out at the room and everyone. Um, and then he was a guy who – he was a sailor and just like, a, you know, just a funny kind of crass guy. And he often wore this T-shirt emblazoned with a squirrel. And the caption was, I'm so old I can no longer find my nuts so he insisted on wearing this t-shirt while he was laying in bed dying and in fact um my friend ended up burying him in that t-shirt but what was just so beautiful about that was that everyone who came to his bedside got a good chuckle out of it and he loved that like part of what he part of the meaning he found in the world was making other people laugh and he carried that with him all the way through to the end which is great. And what a gift he gave to Mm. everyone else. Exactly.
0: So I hope you enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Again, we'd like to thank Shoshana Berger and Dr. B.J. Miller, the authors of the book, The Beginner's Guide to the End. Great title. And our audience here in Palo Alto. And thank you to those of you joining us on the radio. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.
2: <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Lisa. Bye, everyone.